0: <laughs> oh, he did, yeah, he left that part out. Cough, which means open palm, bend, open, allow, tame. My soul faints with longing for your salvation. But I have put my hope in your word. When eyes fail, looking for your promise. I say, When will you comfort me? Though I am like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your decrees. How long must your servant wait? When will your punishment? When will you punish my persecutors? The arrogant dig pitfalls for me, contrary to your law. All your commands are trustworthy. Help me, for men persecute me without cause. They almost wipe me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Preserve my life according to your love, and I will obey the statutes of your house. What is
1: uh, different with verse eighty-four that he read?
2: I don't know. I didn't see
0: it.
1: Look at 84.
2: You better just tell me, Burke, because I've lost my page.
0: (laughs) What mine says is, How long must your servant wait?
1: When will you punish my persecutors? No mention of a synonym for the word there in that verse. That's the first one.
2: You're going to have to tell me what's on your mind because I can't read it. I have no that's idea. That's what it.
1: I'm saying. There's five there's five verses in this chapter, 119, that doesn't have synonyms for the word. Oh, Except, I see. You know, ordinances.
2: Word. And what verse
1: is that? 84 is the 84. very first one.
2: Oh, okay. Good deal. Yeah. yeah. Sure enough. There's only a couple times that...
1: It's, there's five.
2: Five of them. Ah, that's very good. Very good. All right. We got uh, a couple prayer requests here. We've got prayers for the... Oru family in Sardinia, Italy. They need Jesus. Lisa in Australia has lots of medical issues. Poor lady. she's just She's got all kinds of things going on, and her son also has lung disease, and so we want to keep her in prayer. Uh, Becky thinks she may have uh, coronavirus. She hasn't been feeling well, and uh, her husband so far is okay. I just heard from him this afternoon, and he says she's okay right now. So keep her in prayer. And then she said she has some family issues uh, weighing her down as well. And then Art is in bad shape and has been transferred to the hospital to check for bleeding on his brain. And so we want to have him in prayer. And then we, as always, have all of the uh, individual prayer uh, requests for salvation of family members or friends here. And we just want to remember them uh, in our prayer as well. And uh, then finally, you know, I don't know how serious it is, but Hidako uh, fell down last night and uh, and she really damaged herself on her hip and she had some x-rays today. I don't know. They said they can't read them until tomorrow, but uh, we'll just keep Hidako in prayer as well. So here we go. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for these people that need Jesus and uh, the families and the uh, family and friends and uh, just all of these people that we have on this list here and that's being added to. Uh, Lord, salvation is an important part of the human experience, and without it, there is going to be an eternity of regret. So we certainly lift all of them up, and we lift up those that are having uh, physical problems and family problems and other issues that uh, are weighing them down or that may be uh, causing detriment to their lives. And uh, so we lift them up, Lord, and we certainly also pray for our president. He's. Uh, He's just hemmed in by enemies on every side, and he's doing his very best to keep this nation going properly. And it doesn't matter what he does, whether it's uh, one thing or another, if it's to the left or the right, he is always second guessed and he's always being uh, beaten up by the uh, friends of the devil. And uh, we would pray that you would uh, just give him wisdom in his mind, give him wise counselors, and help him to make right decisions, which will keep him on a straight path leading this nation, and that he will do so without regard to these naysayers at all, but uh, to the good of the the people of this nation instead. And we certainly pray that uh, he will be victorious in the uh, election ahead so that he can continue to lead us and make uh, uh, decisions on judges that need to be uh, brought in to make right moral decisions for this nation and so on. One thing leads to another, and so we lift him up in this capacity, Lord. And we also pray for this class and that you would be with us and help us to handle your word rightly and to uh, uh, just uh, do what's right and to uh, make sure that uh, what we teach is proper. But if something is not, we would pray that people wouldn't have it in their mind, that they would uh, have it taken away by a proper evaluation of what we're looking at so that they are not led down a wrong path. Lord, we pray these things that you will be glorified and we certainly pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are in one, or 2 Corinthians 11,
0: 14. First, 14. You can 13, 13 sounds good. Paragraph. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And 14. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Okay,
2: I was in the wrong book, so I've got to get a couple more pages. I was in 1 Corinthians, as I always do. Uh, 14, let's see here. This one is close. Yes, and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So it's almost identical. All right, uh, enter Satan once again. He's uh, We're going through uh, 1 John 3 right now, and he's mentioned in there as the devil. And uh, Anybody know before I give an evaluation what Satan means? A literal translation, accuser, ha satan the accuser. Now you can have Satan in the Old Testament, the word Satan, and it simply means to accuse or whatever, but when it's prefixed by the article, Ha Satan, it is speaking of the evil one, the devil, Satan. Okay, so there you go with that. Anyway, uh, in the previous verse, Paul spoke of the false apostles, as those who would transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And now he says. And no wonder. This then shows why they do this. It is because they are just like their leader, Satan, who transforms himself into an angel of light. The verb is in the present tense, and so this is not speaking of any specific incident found in Scripture. Rather, it is speaking of his customary way of working at all times. Now, before I go on... Uh, there is a giant uh, divide between who you believe the Nephilim are in Genesis chapter 6. It's one of the goofiest arguments, I think, in uh, uh, the Old Testament that people get into. Um, Some say that it is angels sleeping with men, and thus you come out with this hybrid mixture, which is, you know, the Nephilim, okay? And then you have the view that it is the sons of God. It's not speaking of angels at all. It is speaking of uh, the line of Adam, which was introduced. They are the sons of God. And then from there, uh, they intermarry with the people that do not believe in the Lord. They are not sons of God. They are not anticipating the Messiah. And so you have a group of people which are called the Nephilim. And all the word Nephal means is to fall. That's all it means, the ones that are fallen. It doesn't specifically mean that they're fallen because they're angels that have, you know, fallen. It could mean that you fall down to pray. It could mean that you fall down to pick up cigarette butts. That's all it means, okay? Uh, There is no reason at all, there's no biblical or scriptural reason at all to justify that the Nephilim are angels mixing with humans. Okay. It It's not scriptural. It's not something I know people disagree with that, but I will be coming out with a presentation, which will continue to, uh, solidify that in your minds. Why that is so I did my Genesis six sermon on that particular issue. It is correct. Go watch it. Disagree if you want, but, um, somebody that was visiting from England, not too long ago. You remember they were in the mm-hmm. church, yeah. Spencer and Sandra. He had a wonderful insight into this. And, you know, I'm not one to just jump on anything, but I uh, went ahead and I uh, evaluated it with him. Probably an hour and a half, we looked over one word throughout Scripture to make sure that we were right. And then I took some other things and I pulled that out. And you can take what is said about Satan in the New Testament as well. And you can come to a much more refined conclusion than I did even in that Genesis sermon. So just so you know, uh, when you're talking about Satan, Satan does not, and his demons, his fallen angels, do not intermingle with humanity. That That is unrealistic. It is not scriptural. And, you know, if the purpose of the flood was to destroy the Nephilim, then God failed because the Nephilim are also mentioned after the flood. Okay, so uh, use reason in your theology. If you disagree, don't send me your uh, uh, email as to why I'm wrong because I've heard every argument on the Nephilim that can possibly be submitted. And I will just say this, that you were wrong. So just leave it at that. And uh, if you want, go ahead and do your own video on the Nephilim and teach it however you want. But I have taught it. I will continue to teach it. And I will further refine that with what we talked about that day. And I was so thankful that he said that because he was kind of reticent. Like, you know, I want to ask you something. And and uh, it was a very, very wise um, analysis that he gave. And like I said, I'm I'm not just going to jump on something. So I went through all of the incidents in Scripture of this. And it turned out to be pretty well. Before you guys leave today, I need to uh, make sure that somebody just walked in for the people online. I need to make sure that I talk to you because you've sent me a couple of emails and I have responded. And I said, please let me know. And you never responded, which means you didn't get my response because okay. it comes back and it says uh, email bounced. So just okay. so you know. Okay. So I just need to know how to contact you guys. Anyway, we'll go on. Uh, Wherever you want. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we've got plenty of six-foot space between all of us, so we're in good shape. Charlie, when they, uh, I'm, I don't remember if it's in Numbers 13, 33 or something, uh, it talks about the Nephilim, um, the sons of Anak. Okay, yes, yes, in the sons of Anak. And we went through those in those particular uh, verses back in the when we were in Numbers. And so you can go watch those sermons or, if you want. But yeah, the Nephilim were there as well. Once again, they're not a angel human hybrid. That, that is unrealistic, and it's not scriptural. So there you go with that. But uh, these are big guys, just like Goliath was of the Rephaim, and uh, we have other Rephaim that we've mentioned, the Zanzumim and the Emim, etc. We, we've done those in sermons, and we got more coming up. But um, if you disagree, that is fine. I have no problem with that, but I don't need to hear your analysis. I've gone through this many, many times. Anyway, um, so we're talking about Satan, uh, uh, it is speaking of his customary way of working at all times, is what I just said. He is an enemy of all that is good, and the titles used to describe him in the New Testament show that his very nature is evil, and yet he presents himself as a shining example of what is proper and correct. The term angel of light indicates purity and holiness, so he's presenting himself as an angel of light. However, if he supposedly transforms himself into this, then it is a false representation of who he is. It is not his true nature, but a cunning disguise, which is intended to lure the unsuspecting away from the truth. So this is what Satan is doing. This is what the false teachers or the false apostles are doing, following their master, the devil. Okay, um... With that, um, another important point to understand, because people want to know this, and I get this question a lot, and to save you asking it, I'll just say it right now, is that uh, people ask, well, how did the devil fall? How did that happen, and did God create something that is not good? You know, in other words, Satan isn't good, okay? Now, one thing we can say is that Satan is not completely bad. There's no such thing as absolute evil, okay? Um, you can have, uh, the idea that you want to think about good and bad is that, uh, just think of a car is made out of metal, right? And when you have a car that's got a hole in it because of rust, what is that hole?
0: Not car.
2: It's not car. That's exactly what it is. It's a lack of a good thing. Well, think of the metal as being a good thing, okay? The hole is simply the lack of a good thing, all right? That's all it is, Okay. The thing about the devil and when he fell, and you can go, what I was going to tell you is just go watch the Genesis sermon called Who is the Liar? And that will help you to understand. I've done a couple of them on good and evil early in the Genesis sermons, and then um, how did Satan fall and it, how it's not God's responsibility. And I can, just very briefly, it's much more analyzed in the sermon, and I quote uh, Thomas Aquinas, who gives a very good analysis of it. But you can have something that is not perfect, and yet it is not a defect, okay? There's nothing wrong with it. Adam was created perfect, but he is not God. He's limited in things. He's not, you know, hes if God made Adam a perfect electrician, then he's a perfect electrician, but he didn't make Adam a perfect plumber. He's got one specialty, and that's all he does, okay? So if he messes up in plumbing, it's because he shouldn't have been doing the job in plumbing, all right? God didn't create Adam with anything wrong with him, okay? He had limitations. Limitations are not a defect. It's when you exercise your limitation in a way which is not appropriate that defect enters, and we'll call the defect sin. Okay, and so he was told, you're not to do these things. It doesn't matter if he knew why or not. He's been given a command. He did those things, and he fell. Okay, that wasn't God's fault. So if if that interests you in understanding how that happened, because we're talking about Satan, and people have that question. I get it a lot. How do you justify that there is a Satan, there's an evil entity, and yet God created him? Go watch that sermon, and you will understand, all right? it it will make complete sense to you and that will show you that god is not at fault in the things that he has created when they go wrong okay the fault is in us all right anyway this then is the explanation talking about um uh satan it's cunning disguise to lure the unsuspecting away from the truth this this then is the explanation of false apostles conduct of the preceding verse which you read verse 13 they follow in form and style with their leader satan Okay, this transformation is found in the message that is presented, in the twisting of the truth, in the perversion of Scripture, in attributing the works of wickedness to that which is of God, and so on. All of these things are what a false apostle would do, okay? It is incumbent on all of us, every one of us, to study the Word in order to show ourselves approved when a false teacher, or even the devil himself, comes with a false message. Now remember... Satan knows scripture. How do you know he knows scripture? The Lord with That's right. He went to the Lord and he tempted the Lord with scripture. He took something that seemed to make sense and he presented it to him just the way he did to Adam and the Lord prevailed over that because he understood scripture better than Satan. He's the author of scripture. He's the one that gave it to us. And so he knew exactly what Satan was going to do and he knew how to work around it. Okay, but what did Jesus do when he was presented with Scripture that was not handled properly? Jesus, what did he do? He cited Scripture properly, right? Okay, so that's our best defense against somebody that misuses Scripture, is that there's Mrs. Garrett. How are you tonight? Are you doing okay? Okay. All right, we were just having a little prayer for you. Anyway. Um yeah so if you will take the time to read scripture and if you'll take the time to read scripture and if you'll take the time to read scripture and just keep doing that daily every day every evening every morning you will know how to quote scripture and hopefully you will know how to quote it in context and if you do that you will be able to refute people that are taking verses out of context you know one time i had a, a person send me an email it was kind of sad to watch you've got these um Uh, the black Jews they they, they're the guys that claim that they're the uh, true Israel and they're all over America I can't remember the name of their cult but they uh, they claim that they are the true Israel and they say well you're just Edomites speaking to Christians in general okay and they were taking verses and they were throwing them out at this one guy that knew scripture kind of well okay and by the time they were done he was so confused he couldn't answer anymore he was not prepared for these people you know and that's why you need to be careful uh, especially when it says um, uh, in either 2 or 3 John, where it says that if somebody comes with a message other than this, don't greet them. John, second, John. Uh, second John, don't greet them. Don't welcome them into your home, lest you share in their wicked work. And the reason why he says that isn't that you're actively sharing in their wicked work. It's that you are allowing them to continue their wicked work. Because you are uninformed about how to refute them that's why you, you do not want to have Jehovah's witnesses in your house if you want to go outside if you know your Bible well enough to stand there and say I'd like you to tell like to tell you the truth about Jesus and if they're willing to let you go ahead and do that but I would not get in a back and forth and back and forth with them it, it serves no purpose it's called scripture tennis and they take one verse and throw it out, and then you take a verse and throw it out, and there's a point where nobody is being benefited at all. So, uh, you know, unless you're trained and you're willing to set parameters in advance, I wouldn't get into that kind of a dialogue with them, okay? Um, who was it? Was it you? Uh, yes, yes, it was you. I, I I won't say who I'm talking to, but I was asked one time to, uh, somebody has a Jehovah's Witness in their life, and they said, you know, we want to have a reasonable defense of the gospel and of scripture with that person to maybe change their mind okay and so i said that's fine and when i showed up in our meeting there were two elders with this person so it's three against one and immediately the first thing i did was i spoke a little bit of hebrew to them and they didn't have any idea what they were saying i said okay you obviously don't know any hebrew at all so therefore i don't want you quoting hebrew to me and saying this is what this means because if you don't even know how to check that then that's out. And then I did the same thing with Greek. I said, so you are unqualified to tell me what the original Greek says, and you're unqualified to tell me what that Hebrew says. So don't bother with that. I set the parameters there. And then um, we went to, for example, Isaiah um, 9, 6. And it says, uh, we'll read it very quickly, okay? Just so you understand, this is what's going on in this verse right here that we're looking at. Isaiah 9:6 speaks about, you know, the Lord. It speaks about him coming and who he would be. And uh, wonderful. yes, wonderful, mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father. Okay, so here's what it says. It says, um, uh, I say, I've got to be in chapter 9 to read 9, 6. Okay, 9, 6, it says, for unto us a child is born, and unto unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Okay, and so we were just going through various Parts of the scripture and showing why Jesus is God and they defended why he isn't God. Okay, and I said um, uh, Here it calls him El Gabor mighty God. Gabor is mighty. El is God. So he's God mighty Okay, so that's how he was presented and they said um, Well, no, that's uh, that's just, you know, they they talked about it like that. No, that's not that's just a term that was applied to him and I said, okay, well then let's go to chapter 10 of isaiah because it's the next chapter in isaiah and uh i said um i'll have to find it'll take me a second to find this one um it says in isaiah the same term it says and if you see it there just let me know what verse it's in so we don't spend all day but isaiah 10 oh i found it 21 the remnant will turn uh the remnant will return the remnant of jacob to the mighty god and it says in the previous verse but will depend on the lord the holy one of israel in truth so it is speaking el gabor the mighty god is obviously the lord that's the context and it's very clear that el gabor is mighty god and so their defense was oh well in isaiah 9 6 it's not capitalized i said that's the new world translation of the bible i said it doesn't matter if it's capitalized or not he said but yes it's capitalized in isaiah 10 21. And I said, that's because it has to be because it's speaking of the Lord. But I said, in the Hebrew, there is no capitalization. It's a consonantal language, and there's no capitalization at all. I said, then I said this in a sermon, I think uh, just a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago. I I said it recently, is that God would be incompetent to use the term El Gabor only two times in all of Scripture on two pages, one chapter apart from each other, and say one is him and one isn't him. That would be the epitome of incompetence, okay? It doesn't didn't serve any purpose, though. We were there, and I defended everything logically in it right over their head. They're unwilling to see. So there's a point where you just have to say, I'm wasting my time, okay? Just be a witness to them. Say, if you ever want to talk about this, I want you to know that you will be condemned on the day because you have not believed what God has done in human history. That's all you can do. But there's a point where you just have to say, this is not going to work. But don't, if you are not prepared to talk to them, okay. if you're not, don't do it. Because you will find yourself like those people that were talking to those people on the street. They, you'll find yourself actually affirming their bad doctrine. And that's why John says that. Lest you share in their wicked work. You will be affirming them by not knowing scripture well enough to defend against what they're saying. So be careful with that. I'll read that paragraph again. This then is the explanation of the false apostle's conduct of the preceding verse. They follow in form and style with their leader, Satan. This transformation is found in the message that is presented in the twisting of scripture, as these people do, in the perversion of scripture, the twisting of the truth, the perversion of scripture, in attributing the works of wickedness to that which is of God. So be very careful of that. And Know your Bible well enough that you can find those things and at least defend what you do before you go out and engage people like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with teaching what you know at any level. You know, that's that's how you learn is to do that. But I'm talking about debating with people that are obviously twisting the truth and not affirming them by your lack of knowledge in a particular issue. Then one thing you can do is say, you know, I'm not sure about that, but I will get you an answer. I will study that and get back to you. That's, you know, that's fine. But be careful what you're doing so that you don't affirm people like that, Um, because this is what Satan does is he takes things and he twists them enough where you can be really confused. Um, uh, Another thing is that uh, I think I've said it at least once or twice already, but you have to read the word. You've got to read it and you've got to read it and you've got to read it. Just never stop reading the word. Never stop asking the Lord, why is this here? And don't think. This is one thing that people make the mistake with all the time, and I try to say this at the beginning of every single Bible study. If I am wrong, Lord, please direct them away from this. Lead them to somebody that will correct my bad theology. Don't think that because you saw something on YouTube... It's one of the biggest errors that we as humans make is to say, I saw it on YouTube. It must be true. I mean, we do it with all kinds of things. And that is probably the worst place on this planet to get your theology is watching videos on YouTube. That, that's probably the worst. Okay. And I'm saying that as a guy that puts videos on YouTube. So obviously I'm serious about it because I wouldn't want anybody to get their theology directly from me alone either. You have to know the word well enough that when you hear somebody say something, whether it's Charlie Garrett, whether it's John Hagee, or whether it's Jack Hibbs, or anybody else, you could say, that sounds correct, or that doesn't sound correct. I'm still going to check it out. The what?
0: Discernment.
2: discernment. And the only way that you are going to get discernment is by reading your word again, and again, and again, and, and never stop reading the word. It well, is the, like
0: like that guy that was trying to
2: take the lowercase and
1: name.
2: Oh, the, yeah. I mean, Isaiah 55 directly points to no, that, that's Christ, that's absolutely know, right. That's right. You can't argue with that. No, you can't. So. But yes, they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they can and they will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, it is incumbent on all people to st- study the word in order to show themselves approved when a false teacher or even the devil himself comes with a false message. But how impossible that is without knowing the word. And so the world is filled with cults, it's filled with heresies, and those who follow after anyone with a crazy vision or a supposed word from the Lord, which is no word at all. Satan uses all of these avenues and 10,000 more to lure away precious souls from the grace of Christ to the Lord, Christ the Lord, to another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul carefully warns us of such deception in Galatians chapter 1. Let me read that to you right now. We're going to be in Galatians very soon. I just, I'm excited. We're only a page away from being there. Uh, Galatians chapter 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. I'm going to be talking about a different gospel, which so many people are stuck in right now during the prophecy update on Sunday. And I have already got it in my mind. And I'll probably be talking and forget to say this important point. But it's a different gospel that people are stuck in all around the world today, and it's growing like a uh, like a onion. Uh, what do you call it? A blooming onion over at the Apex Steakhouse. It's just getting huge. And uh, uh, I, my desire is to say during that, please watch today's sermon because I'm going to talk about exactly this issue in today's sermon. Okay. But it, I'll talk about it during the prophecy update, unless we get preempted by something else. Um, so I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul is very clear about this. He absolutely wants us to hold to sound doctrine. Yeah, you've got to speak up if you're going to talk because these people can't hear you. This, uh... I went through this before I moved to Florida. Um, a friend I went to school with—that whole stuck in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John misreading Acts yeah. and Paul is heresy.
0: Paul is going—it's Paul versus Jesus—is what they're saying.
2: Yeah. To say. Oh, that's right. That's what, the whole word, that's what. That's you what know? people do. And the the Scripture is one unified body. It is right. one unified body, and people will fall back on the Gospels, and they'll fall back on the Law of Moses simply because. They don't want to come to the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the main thing that the enemy pulls us away from. Is me, me, me. I am going to earn God's favor. I am going to please God. I am going to observe the Ten Commandments and the uh, Law of Moses. And it's all about me when it's such a simple thing. Right. It's all about Jesus. If you can just get that in your head, that's all that we need is to understand that Jesus Christ provides the gospel uh through what he did and that is revealed in one corinthians fifteen verses three and four it's appropriated in Romans ten nine and ten. If you can get that everything else comes down to simply growing in doctrine. Everything. All right. Life application to be to avoid being deceived by the devil. Read. Read the Bible. Know your Bible. That's <laughs> correct. Okay. Life application. Uh eleven fifteen
1: fifteen.
2: Oh, wait a second. Oh okay. Speak up. John
1: chapter eight. Yeah. The Jews came to him, and he said, "You are of your father the devil." Right. You know it when you said that. You know that they go back to ancestors and all this stuff. That they they were doing. He's darkness. Absolutely he's, he's
2: right. Darkness. It, it's, it's never changed. It's always the been that way.
1: You is darkness? How great is that darkness? Though?
2: That's right. Now, did you know that I used John chapter 8, the verse that you just cited in my commentary that I typed this morning? So I'm wondering if you've been looking in my computer. That doesn't come out for another 11 days. So I I think you've been spying on he it. Works he's a hacker. Good. He's, he's he a hacker. He doesn't
0: look like a hacker, but
2: he's a hacker. He hacked us. <laughs> yeah, it, it, Satan doesn't change his ways. He just keeps... Okay, uh, we're in 1115.
0: It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve.
2: Okay. Let's see here. I'm going to read it again because I was trying to find the page while you are reading. So, therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. I don't know if that's close to what you had or not. Uh, but the
0: biggest thing is the masquerading. Masquerading. Transforming.
2: Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, one is, uh, transforming is not the same as masquerading. Masquerading, no, is, masquerading yeah.
0: is more deceitful.
2: Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely right. Okay, 1115, the train of thought thus far is that the false apostles Paul has been speaking of are actually deceitful workers who transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And this is actually unsurprising because Satan himself has to transform himself into an angel of light to hide his true nature, because their father, the devil, does this, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. You know what, you can think of, uh, uh, what's the guy's name, Jim Jones. I mean, he didn't come and say, I'm the devil, or I'm following the devil. He came out and he said, you know, I'm I Got the word and I, he was a Presbyterian minister at first, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. I think so anyway, so he's he's coming out and he's transforming himself into an angel of light when in fact he was you know of his father, the devil, and what happens? he goes down to Guyana with what what are you laughing about um, we... oh okay yeah uh, <laughs> uh so he took all these people down to Guyana, and they ended up most of them killing themselves, and those that didn't kill themselves were forcefully killed. Right? right. So, I mean, you got to be careful. I, people think they're following a good teacher. They think they're following somebody that's, you know, properly handling scripture because he stands up there and he reads out of the word that none of them read. And so they have no idea if what he's saying matches it all or not. So I'll tell you what happened today is I was talking to Burke and uh, Jim about this before class, Is I talked to somebody. I don't want to give too much information because we're on the internet right now. but I was talking to somebody about Uh, that I've known for probably five years, although I don't know this individual's name, because I see this person in a context once every two weeks, and um, so I was talking, and because we have the coronavirus, there's nobody in this particular store, and so I just was like, you know, talking in general about things, and uh, uh, this individual asked about, uh, uh, how's your church going, and I said, oh, it's fine. I said, it's real small anyway, so it doesn't really matter. I said, most of the church is online. And that got the curiosity going. And We started talking and eventually I'm talking about scripture and about how everything points to Jesus. And finally, after about 10 minutes of just talking back and forth, this individual says, what, what's the name of your website? I want to attend online. And so I was so happy about that. And the last thing I said, I said it twice before I left. I said, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Okay, because this person now may start watching this this." particular live stream i mean it's a lady i I keep saying this person but i um uh i guess i have to say it's lady uh she doesn't want to come because of the current situation with coronavirus i said that's probably better because we might have 10 people and then you wouldn't be able to come in anyway whatever so um uh i said but please attend online but i i kept saying to her Read your Bible because it doesn't matter if she goes here, or if she goes to a Presbyterian church or a, a Anglican church, it makes no difference. If you don't know your Bible, you don't know if you're being told the wrong thing or not. Yeah, you know, and I want people to read their Bible even if they're coming here, but more so because I want them to make sure that they are not being duped by anybody. If they leave this church, somebody here, attends here. I would hope that they know their Bible well enough when they go to another church to know what is right and what is wrong. Read your Bible, okay? So, in other words, just as Satan's true nature is hidden behind a false show of light. So it is with these false apostles in that their true nature is hidden behind a false display of righteousness. In fact, they certainly claim a greater righteousness than Christ because they insert works of the law and other external displays of righteousness into their theology. If you think about it now, these Hebrew Roots Movement people claim that they have a greater righteousness than Christ don't they? Because they're telling you, you need to observe the Sabbath. You need to observe the feasts of the Lord. You need to not eat pork, which means that they're doing something that Christ has said, his last words on the cross, it is finished, right? He didn't say it's almost finished and then die. He said it is finished. So they are actually presenting themselves as greater in their piety and in their ability to please God than Jesus himself. Yes, they throw away Ephesians, and they throw all of Scripture away. They just pull out what they want. They pick and choose their theology, and that is a really, really sad place to be. Okay, so they claim a greater righteousness than Christ because they insert works of the law and other external displays of righteousness into their theology. In doing this, they say that what Christ did and the righteousness he imputes to his followers is insufficient for their salvation. Therefore they are claiming a greater righteousness than Christ in what they are teaching. If you go to a Seventh-day Adventist, you have to observe the Sabbath. And if you do that, you also, uh, you know, I was at a Seventh-day Adventist. My children used to take um violin lessons there and come to find out, you know, they have dietary restrictions. They weren't allowed to drink Pepsi. I mean, it's just like arbitrary folks, stuff. Is okay I, have I have Pepsi. no idea. All I know is he said, "No, we can't drink Pepsi." And I I I'm thinking where, where does this come from? Where does this type of manipulation of the human being come from? But, you know, it's the same type of manipulation that we're seeing in certain states around the United States right now, if you know what I'm talking about. Without trying to get political, there are certain states that are manipulating their people in an unhealthy way, in ways that are very detrimental to the people. And it's going to have either blowback towards them, which has happened in one state, or it's going to have blowback in that people are going to start committing suicide people are going to start beating their wives up etc because they are being so manipulated and that's what religion does that's what i'm talking about false religion these people get their hooks into people to the point where what was that guy out in david koresh he was sleeping with the wives of everybody in the congregation because he is the lamb of god he said and their husbands are letting their wives do this this is manipulation, and this is how you, how easy it is for human beings to be pulled in the wrong direction. And it all comes down to one major problem. They don't know the word of God. They have not taken the time to read it and to simply say, I can discern that this is a lie.
0: Don't you find it interesting that the Hebrews Roots movement is growing because they have to do something? Oh, yeah. Get it, and it's therefore not free that's right Whereas grace, is, grace free, is free but yet our entire society right now seems to be leaning towards this everything's free thing
2: everything <laughs> is free. yeah you want to work for your theology but you want to get free for your everything, yeah, everything. Like, it, you know, it doesn't up. make any you sense
0: was,
2: yeah. Was, yeah. exactly yeah yeah well, right. really yep. mm-hmm. okay so he imputes to his followers what Christ does is insufficient it is a subtle but direct attack against the work of Christ The gospel says that the lord is our righteousness we are saved by faith in his work in turn for having our sin nailed to the cross he bestows upon us his righteousness it's a trade okay it's called substitution christ died for our sins he substitutes here and therefore we are given his righteousness substitution there's nothing involved on the way to this process it says i gotta stop drinking pepsi okay that's not involved in that substitutionary process Okay, we are saved by faith in his work. All right, therefore, anyone who says that we must add to salvation by grace through faith alone is claiming a righteousness greater than that of Christ. As this is impossible, it is a self-condemning act. For this, their end will be, as Paul says, according to their works. What this means is that because their works are false— because their works pervert the gospel, and because their works are what they stand on, then they will be judged by their works and not by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, I got to be careful on Sunday when I bring this particular issue up and I read this article, okay? And the reason why is because there may be somebody that has actually been saved out there in a church and he came to Christ trusting in the gospel alone. That person will not lose his salvation by going into The Hebrew Roots Movement. That's not going to happen. Christ has made a commitment. He has sealed them with his spirit. They are sealed and saved unto the day of salvation. They will not lose their salvation, but they will lose their rewards. But a person that has gone into the Hebrew Roots Movement or any of these other cults that say you must do this and this and this and this, those people are not saved and they will not be saved. There's a difference between the two. Okay, so try to understand that there are categorical boxes that we all fit into everything fits into a Particular box and we have to keep our boxes straight people that are saved that came to Christ and then fall away into a a Bad thing they will have a bad end, but it won't be a condemning end It'll just be a judgment with a lot of loss of rewards The opposite is true for people that never came to Christ that feel that they have to earn Christ's favor or God's favor Apart from Christ I should say so just keep that in your mind imagine the horror they will feel when they see how filthy their supposed righteousness truly is when they stand before pure and undefiled righteousness. The standard is Christ. That's all there is to it. There is no other standard than Jesus Christ. I said it either last week or I'll say it this week. I can't remember which. But it doesn't matter if a person is under the law of Moses or if he is not under the law of Moses. The standard is the law of Moses, because that is God's law. And Christ fulfilled it. He is the embodiment of the law, and therefore, He is the standard by which everybody else would be judged. So it doesn't matter if you're under the law or not. We are not under law, but we will be judged by the standard, which is Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law. Everybody understand that? So there's a difference. We are not under the law. The Gentiles around the world are not under the law, but Christ is the standard for our judgment. Okay? Our judgment as believers has been executed. He died on the cross in fulfillment of the law, and that is imputed to us. Other people that have not come to Christ will receive the penalty, which would be brought about by not fulfilling the law perfectly. Okay, life application. And what do you trust for your salvation? I'm talking to anybody here that doesn't really know, but especially people that may turn this video on someday and just want to know. What are you trusting in for your salvation? If you say anything other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you have missed the mark. Nothing can wash away the defilement of man except his cross, and nothing can grant us the righteousness we need to stand before God except his work imputed to us. Nothing else will do. Nothing will satisfy. Okay,
0: 1116. Amen. Amen for sure. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting.
2: Okay, very close, just reworded, but very close. Okay, Paul has already diverted into a need for boasting on several occasions. Excuse me. He did so in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8. He did so in verse 1 of this chapter, of which the statement is a, a general repeat of that thought. Hence the words, I say again, in verse 1, hence the words, I say again. In verse 1, he said, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. The words, I say again, let no one think me a fool, are given concerning his boasting. Even if he commends himself, it should not be thought of as a fool's boasting, but as a necessary part of his defense against the false apostles. Continuing on, his words add in sarcasm. He says, If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool. In other words, if boasting makes me a fool, then receive me as a fool so that I may boast a little bit. That's the intent of what he's saying here. The words a little show that he is asking for their tolerance in his minimal boasting and in things that are true about himself. This is to be taken as sarcastically contrasting a great and untruthful boasting of the false apostles. You see what he's doing? They're boasting greatly. He'll boast a little, okay? In essence, you have put up with a lot of foolish and false boasting by those extra super apostles, and so please put up with just a dab of truthful boasting from me. He is not claiming that he is a fool for boasting, but if that is how he is perceived in order to defend his apostleship, then so be it. Life application Paul goes to great lengths to defend the truth of the gospel. It is a good lesson for us to follow through with as well, and yet there's a time when we have to step back, shake the dust off our feet, and move on. Be patient, be kind, and as Paul would do, be firm. Speak the truth in season and out. Um, Paul gives directions. I can't remember. I think it's um, in Timothy, but he says about um, taking on a contentious person. What are you supposed to do? Rebuke him once, Once,
0: twice,
2: twice, and then have nothing to do with him. If a person just wants to simply show how smart they are and they want to go back and forth, warn him once, warn him a second time, and then have nothing to do with him. Very good. That's what Paul would say, and that is what you need to do. If you're on social media, you're on Facebook or something, and you uh, uh, get into an argument with somebody about a particular issue, tell them once. This is what the Bible says. Tell them a second time, and then just don't go back and forth. Scripture tennis solves nothing if they're not willing to listen to what is proper and correct warn them once warn them twice twice and then have nothing to do with them um you know that's just the way it should be there's a point where you just have to go on uh, go ahead Eleven seventeen.
0: yeah in this self-confident boasting i am not talking as the lord would but as a fool
2: okay this is a little different what i speak i speak not according to the lord but as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Now, Paul writes that, and he's obviously saying, this is my approach of doing this, and this is not how the Lord would do it. But guess what? It is how the Lord would want it to be done. How do we know that's true?
0: Because it's here.
2: It's recorded in Scripture. That's exactly right. All Scripture is God-breathed, all of it. It is divinely inspired through men of God so that the people of God can rightly handle the Word of God, okay? And so we know that this is an acceptable way of doing it. Okay, this verse is one which calls out for a deep analysis of it concerning the inspiration of scripture. Oh funny that's I, I didn't read that, but here I'm going on the same lines that I typed this how many years ago. Anyway, the Bible is believed to be the full and complete revelation of God to humanity. It is of divine origin and yet it is also of human origin. Man, under inspiration of God, penned what he was led to pen, however. At the same time, man's thoughts, his style, his heart, all of this is included in the books of the Bible. In this verse, Paul says, What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord. And so the question is, are these words inspired by God or not? Albert Barnes gives two options concerning the matter. Before I give you Albert Barnes two options, I know I say this a lot. Anytime I quote Albert Barnes, I say it. I'm sure I do. I love Albert Barnes. He is a very clear thinking person. And what he does is he gives different logical arguments for things. He doesn't just stop and say, well, this is the way it is. He explains why he thinks this way. And so when you read Barnes, now I want to tell you, and I think I've said this before, I've got it in the back room uh, up on that uh, one thing, and you can check it out if you want. Um, Take it home and read it. It's only the New Testament, Albert Barnes' commentary on the New Testament. And it's a book about this thick, it's a big, big book, okay? And his commentary is so small, you can't. You have to get a magnifying glass to read it to fit it all into there, and then it's got the Gospels, you know, or the uh, New Testament writings below it. But he's a real prolific writer, and the first time I mentioned him to Burke, do you remember what you said?
1: It's tough reading.
2: He, you said exactly. He's a bit wordy. He is very wordy, but he's a very, very clear thinker. Now, Albert Barnes is obviously like anybody else, like Charlie Garrett or anybody you listen to. He's got errors in thinking and, you know, whatever. Okay, so take everything with a grain of salt. But if you want to have logical thinking from a person that will defend things in very good points, he is one of the people that I would recommend you go to. Another guy who goes way back, I think he's the 1600s, uh, Albert Barnes, I think was the 1800s, but Matthew Poole was very good at this as well. What he would do is he would almost follow the Thomas Aquinas system. He would give a reason for something, and then he would give an argument against it, and then he would give an answer to it. So when you're reading it, you're getting his ideas, which are well thought out and they're presented. It doesn't mean they're right, but it's a very good way of doing things so that you can now unpackage in your head in a way similar to him. Once again, he may not be right, or he may be right. Um, uh, If you know of Joseph Benson, who I cite from time to time, Joseph Benson's commentary almost always plagiarizes Matthew Poole, word for word, okay? I don't know if it's intentional or if he says, I'm using Matthew Poole, but once in a while, Joseph Benson will throw in something new, and I will cite him when he says something new. But When I read Joseph Benson, I always go and read Matthew Henry because it's probably the source of what uh, Joseph Benson says, okay? Once again, I don't know if it's intentional or if he just wrote these things down, but it's word for word, word for word. So um, it may be that he's making a comment and where you find it on the internet, it doesn't explain that. And I've never been able to check that out enough. But here we go with Albert Barnes, okay? Albert Barnes gives two options concerning the matter. The phrase here may mean either, I do not speak this inspiration or claiming to be inspired by the Lord, or more probably it may mean, I do not speak this imitating the example of the Lord Jesus or strictly as becomes his follower. So he gives you two possible options. To say that the first is true means that this portion of the Bible is not inspired. From this springboard, men could be, this is my comments on what Albert Barnes said, Uh, From this springboard, men could begin to slice and dice, to pick and choose, and to disregard and neglect any portion of the Bible that they personally feel lacked inspiration. Such happens all the time among liberal scholars, and it turns the Bible into a book of personal theology rather than God-directed theology. I will tell you a group of people that I would recommend you never even open. Don't read anything they say. None of It's it the Jesus Seminar. They're very liberal scholars, and they they put out uh, on the beginning of their website, I don't know if it's still there anymore or not, they put out about 10 questions. They're very basic questions from the Bible, okay? And you answer them, and then you go, and you find out how many you got wrong. Now, I'm going to ask you one of them right now. Where was Jesus born? What? He said Nazareth. Where was Jesus oh, Bethlehem. born?
1: Bethlehem.
2: Okay. Bethlehem. I'm glad you corrected that, because I was going to tell you to leave. Okay, (laughs) Bethlehem. Okay, we all know the story. It's right there in the Bible. Their answer is Nazareth. They say he was born in Nazareth, because they're liberal scholars, and they're doing exactly what the first option would lead to. They say, well, this isn't inspired by God, and this was obviously later it added or something, and the reason why is because it says he shall be called a Nazarene, so obviously he's from Nazareth. Yes, but what I'm saying is that people have an agenda to destroy scripture. Mm -hmm. The Jesus Seminar is as liberal as it gets, and I would recommend you never go to their site. Don't read anything, because it's polluting your mind, it's wasting your time, and all you are getting is a bunch of hooey. That's all you're getting from that, okay? When I uh, do my Old Testament studies, and I've said this to somebody just a day ago, when you read Cambridge, the scholars at Cambridge, their Old Testament theology especially is extremely poor, extremely poor. They uh, believe in the documentary hypothesis, which means that this line was written by one person, this line was written by another person. They've got it all broken down like this, okay? It's very poor. But I still read Cambridge because at least they have valuable insights into the Hebrew, into certain things that even if their commentary on the Bible is wrong, you can still get a lot of good information from them. So I would not say the same thing about Cambridge that I would about the Jesus Seminar. And then when you go to the New Testament, they sound like they're the greatest christian theologians in the world their new testament commentaries in cambridge are outstanding they really are so you would never know that they believe that the entire old testament was just a bunch of myths and uh, you know written by 15 different people so you got to be careful what you read but at the same time you can get valuable lessons even from bad theologians okay i quoted uh, i think i've said this before maybe not i quoted john calvin one day Uh, on the uh, internet, and I was just lambasted by people. I I did did it in a sermon, and uh, uh, on the remarks in the sermon, I was lambasted by people. And I said, truth is truth. It doesn't matter who said it. It's irrelevant who said it. If the comment is true, it doesn't mean that I hold to John Calvin. He just said something that was insightful, right? So you got to be careful with that type of thinking as well. Just because John Calvin said something doesn't mean that it's suspect, okay? It may be, or it may not be. they what God, spoke, God spoke through a donkey that's exactly right okay so um, by taking the Bible and tearing it apart as they do which would be Albert Barnes first example the Bible becomes personal theology okay it's not God directed theology rather Paul's writings are inspired even verses such as this one where he says something that sounds like it may not be the Lord allowed him to speak his heart and to show that his words were not according to an imitation of the Lord. And yet his words are a necessary part of the interaction between him and the Corinthians for us to properly understand God-directed theology. Instead of emulating how the Lord would handle the matter, being the perfect God, Paul says that he speaks not according to the Lord, but as it were, foolishly. In this confidence of boasting he's making a point by saying I'm going to talk to you in this way because you've accepted somebody that's an obvious false apostle and they've talked to you in this way claiming that they're inspired I am now going to act in this way so that you can process properly what is true and what is correct everybody see what Paul's doing okay and the Lord inspired him to write this being fallen beings and filled with imperfections we necessarily handle God directed matters within those limitations Paul was doing just that, unlike Jesus, who had no such limitations. He did. And so, in order to make an example for those at Corinth to understand, he used his limitations, this confidence of boasting, to show them where they were wrong in their thinking. His admission that his example was not in accordance with a perfect emulation of the Lord was carefully chosen and built upon to inform the Corinthians, and thus us, that their own boasting was a much larger division from proper, proper emulation of the Lord. He's doing the argument, how do, what is it? Um, uh, it's where you argue from a lesser to a greater. He's taking a lesser example, and I'm trying to think of the Latin term for it, and I can't right now. Anyway, um, he's building up an argument from a small case to a large case. In other words, Paul is saying, I am giving you an example of myself. By diverting from what the Lord would do in order to show you that what you are doing is the same, but on a much larger scale. Okay, this is Paul's way of correcting their deficiency. At the same time, it is a spirit-led example that God is using in Paul's deficiency, just as he used those of all of his prophets and apostles in the writing of his book. Moses' failings are carefully recorded, from his time at the burning bush in Exodus 3 until his striking the rock at Meribah in Numbers chapter 20. As one reads the Bible, such deficiencies are seen permeating its pages. Think of Jonah. The pulpit commentary beautifully describes Paul's human frailty, which is still used in the inspired word of God. Here's pulpit commentary's words. Boasting. Or what might be stigmatized as such may become a sort of painful necessity necessitated by human baseness but in itself cannot be of the lord there is nothing christ-like in it it is human not divine an earthly necessity not a heavenly example a sword of the giant philistine which yet david may be forced to use the example is that david used goliath's sword remember when he went down and he needed the sword and They said, well, it's back in the back there. It's covered up. And he said, there's none like it. I'll take it. So he's saying that Paul is using Goliath's sword in this particular instance. It's not something of God, and yet it can be used by the people of God. Okay, very well said on the pulpit commentary. Here's another thing about these commentaries. When you read Cambridge or when you read the pulpit commentaries, I want people to understand this because you might read the pulpit commentary and say, well, that's terrible. And that's true. And why would that be? When you have something called albert barnes commentary it is because albert barnes did the commentary but the pulpit commentary is what it's different people that have been asked yeah we'd like you to do the book of galatians you do from numbers 1 through numbers 22 and then you go from numbers 23 to numbers 34 whatever okay so right in the middle of a book of the old testament you can have a great great set of commentaries from the pulpit commentary and all of a sudden you get something you know this person does not believe that this is the word of god so you got to be careful with commentaries even within something is what i think is as good as the pulpit commentary because they're getting different people and you're a great scholar you're you know uh, whatever john MacArthur and you're um, uh, charles ryrie and we're going to get you all together and you're going to write some commentaries and then we're going to compile them into a commentary on the bible different people doing it and then you find out that some of them are really poor commentaries and you're frustrating because you just read beautiful commentary from somebody that this is the word of God, this is literal, here is how this problem is resolved, and it's resolved, we'll say, this is a uh, number six, and it's resolved in Numbers 23, but then you get to Numbers 23, where there's a new commentator, and you'll say, well, there's no resolution to this, and it doesn't match anything, and he never even went and talked to the guy that did the number six commentary did to they find tell out. When, you
0: when they make these traditions?
2: No, no, oh. but you can tell, you can tell when somebody has been selected for a certain part of, and you know, it's like, Uh, when you have a Bible translation. Very few Bible translations are done by a single person. Robert Young did one, John Darby did one, but for the most part, they're done by a translating committee. And so they're going to say, you do the Book of Jonah, and you do Psalms 1 through 27, and you get 50 or 60 scholars, and they're all out there. And you can tell, even though after it's gone to the translating committee, then it goes to a, you know, a committee that does um, style, and then you get somebody that does correctness of language they got all these different people that are coming together to make a body called a version of the bible and you can tell when somebody is translating this and they're no longer translating it you can tell when you start looking at it. It, it it becomes obvious You can look at how this particular word was translated this way for uh fifteen chapters, and all of a sudden it's translated a completely different way than it was before. And you know that this is a new body of translators. It takes a while to discern that, but eventually you will come to that conclusion and you'll say, Ah, now I see why the King James Version has got so many errors in it. It's got multitude of errors. It's a marginal translation, and now I know why that is the case. Unless you're a King James only person, then it's the inspired word of God, and it's the only Bible you should read, nobody should read any other word. But that is not correct. Okay, anyway, um, so uh, yeah, he's got the sort of the giant Philistine, which David may be forced to use. Life application. The human frailties of the authors of the Bible in no way diminish the inspiration of it. In fact, they are necessary elements of inspiration in order for us to understand how far we actually depart from God. Don't let any liberal teaching mislead you away from the truth that all scripture, all scripture is divinely inspired. It is. Cling to this truth as you see your own failings represented in the failings of its human authors. And then understand that God can use and will use you just as you are as you pursue him. Now think of it. King David was an adulterer. King David was a murderer. And yet King David wrote how many of the Psalms? God used an imperfect person. To, and when I say he's a murderer, you could debate that. I wouldn't. He had Uriah killed. He was the one responsible for that. It was murder, okay? He understood that he had done it. He repented of it. He wrote one of the most beautiful Psalms in the entire Psalter based on what he did. 51, that's right. I knew you were going to say that. Good job, Bert. It, it, It's As a matter of fact, I was listening to uh, the Psalms while driving today and 51st psalm was on there it's beautiful to listen to that and the passion that he has in what he had done and when he realized that god is really watching me i'm the king of israel and yet i'm just nobody compared to the lord of all creation where
0: do you you think god used all these imperfect people
2: uh to show his glory
0: Because he had no other choice. Yeah, that's right.
2: If He had no other choice. That's absolutely right. He had no other choice. Second Corinthians chapter 12, 9. That's why. What's that? And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient right. for thee,
0: and my strength is made
2: perfect in your weakness. That's exactly what I was just going to quote. That's exactly right. I don't know the verse number, but that is exactly right.
0: I'm just a wise guy.
2: Yeah, you are a wise guy. Okay, we're in verse 18. He What's
1: that? He came, he, he came to Nazareth. Not basically him. He, they was in Nazareth when the wise got showed up. That's
2: right. That's where he was. <laughs> All right, 18.
1: Since many are boasting in the way
0: of the world does, I too will boast.
2: Oh, that's pretty short, isn't it? I was it waiting for more. Sure. No, All right, Paul is showing the irony of the situation here. In verse 12, he noted the boasting of the false apostles. Those at Corinth have been swayed by them in this boasting. A boasting of the flesh, which is exactly what the book of Galatians is based on, a boasting in the flesh, okay? Now Paul says that if the flesh is what impresses them, he too has the ability to impress based on the flesh, and so he will boast in it. Before he does, he will give a few more notes of irony concerning their relationship with the false apostles, and he will show how he is contrasted to them. After that, he will provide a detailed and hearty list of his qualifications and his efforts on behalf of the gospel. If boasting in the flesh is what impresses them, then he would give them what they desired. Paul's boasting in the flesh provides us with an exacting description of who he is and the things he had done. From this list, we have a record to refer to in order to know him on a much more intimate level. He does this two or three times in his writings, and when they're all put side by side, you can see who the man Paul is in a real, real distinct way. His coming words have become a most important aspect of Christian theology and doctrine. From this mere boasting of Paul, we can find out how to conduct our own lives and where to turn in our own distresses. What seems uninspired on the surface is actually a most important part of learning to deal with life and our relationship with the Lord. The hand of God's inspiration is all over it. So when Paul says that I'm, you know, what do he say in the previous verse, uh, 17, what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord. It does not mean that it is not according to the will of the Lord and the inspiration of the Lord. That is his way of saying, I'm going to make an example that is not of the Lord so that you can learn something. All right, life application. The Lord reveals things to us in the most marvelous of ways. As you read the Bible and come to some passage which is seemingly irrelevant, stop and consider it. In the end, it is, if from God, it must be of great importance. The Bible is a book about the same size as many others, and yet it took centuries to write as God methodically chose real moments in time and in human experience to reveal his heart to us. I'll give you an example of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'll read you the verse. We're going to go to Deuteronomy really quickly. And just take, oh, I could have just done that. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. I had a choice on Monday. I had gotten done with verse 1, and I was so far done with the sermon that I said, I can't go on anymore, so I just finished up the sermon with verse 1. It seems like it's just an uninteresting verse that you read through as an introduction to something else, and by the time I had gotten done with the verse, I said, I can't add anymore, because the next logical stop for me is, I think, verse 11. So you're going to get one one verse on the sermon in 10 weeks from now, because... it's a marvelous, marvelous verse. Anyway, it, oh, Sunday is great. Many days in Kadesh. I'm going to introduce some thoughts from somebody that you all know into yes. the sermon. And uh, did I tell you about that? No. Okay, I'm going to.
0: Pre-launch.
2: Oh, okay, yeah. I, I'm gonna, don't read it. You're not I allowed really to read the uh, sermon in advance, but uh, uh, if you've been sent it. But yeah, I'm going to give some thoughts, and you'll understand what sermon typing day is like for me and one other person that's on planet Earth. And when I have a question, I go to this individual, and that individual will provide information, and we're talking about I think five words in one verse of this week's sermon, and it is a lot of work that went into it so uh in other words, there are people out there that really care about the Word of God. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about somebody that I just go to for assistance, and it is a marvelous, marvelous Can I make uh, one yeah, please.
0: what I really liked about it was that it's like, okay we. We, we think it means a yeah and then it was like well you know we looked here and not looking too good not looking so that, good it doesn't mean a and then we should look over here and like well maybe it could be a yeah and then it's like oh my gosh spot where i would never think to find it yeah it's a yeah there's and so no there, it.
2: there's a lot involved in the word of god there's a lot and the more the problem is the more that you dig the more difficult it gets to understand. It it doesn't get easier, it gets more difficult, because it's just this giant thing that God has given us, and like I said, it's just so perfect. Okay, go on to 18. Did we read the verse yet?
0: Um, No, go ahead. Okay, since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. Yes, I did. Okay,
2: you did read that. Okay, so I I don't know if I read the commentaries or not. Okay, Paul is showing the irony of the situation. In verse 12, he is noting the boasting of the False apostles. Yes, I did read this. I'll read it again. Those at Corinth have been swayed by them, and they're boasting, a boasting of the flesh. Now Paul says that if the flesh is what impresses them, he too has the ability to boast in the flesh. Now, okay, um, I'm going to go down because I know I read that. Paul's boasting in the flesh provides us with an exacting—I read that as well. I'm going to go to the next one. Um, I'm going to go to life application because I read you all of that. The Lord reveals things to us in the most marvelous of ways. As you read the Bible and come to some passage, oh, I read this as well. I'm going to read it again, which is seemingly irrelevant. Stop and reconsider it. In the end, if it is from God, it is of the greatest of importance. It's a book about the size of many others, and yet it took centuries to write as God methodically chose real moments in time and human experience to reveal his heart to us. And that's where I got off my tangent. Yes. So 1119, go ahead.
0: Here we go. Okay. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise.
2: Okay. The words of this verse are parallel to those of 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. However, the words here contain far more irony, ranking as the epitome of Paul's sarcastic attempts to instill reason into the Corinthians. For you put up with fools gladly. is Paul's way of calling himself a fool. This is based on the previous verse, taken together, they read, Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast, for you put up with fools gladly. In essence, he is saying that his boasting is a foolish attempt to get them to recognize his status according to a fleshly nature. If that is what impresses them, if the flesh is what impresses them, then he will break down his fleshly achievements proving that he is the cream of the crop in worldly attainments. In doing so, this, in doing this, they will have to put up with great, great foolishness. In contrast to this are his scathingly sarcastic words, since you yourselves are wise. This shows that their wisdom is to bear with foolishness. It is a contradiction that he is openly highlighting to show how silly it is that they would put up with the boasting of the false apostles. In his words here and to follow, it is Paul's intent to show them that the flesh and the ways of the world mean nothing. Instead, all that matters is Jesus Christ and his gospel. Life application. As soon as we elevate a teacher, a preacher, or a TV evangelist to any level of importance, we actually tread into dangerous waters. Who is it that we are following? A person... Or the message if the message then the person should not be elevated if he is then the message either sound the message either sound or false becomes a secondary issue okay now, I know there are a lot of people that like this particular preacher or they like this particular prophecy guy or whatever we need to not do that we need to be very careful about exalting people and just simply say that guy's message is very sound he is handling the word properly and leave it at that. You don't need to go any, any further than that. Or, you know what? I, I had a guy email me today with, I think, five, maybe six preachers that he follows. And I said, yeah, that guy is really good. And I said, I'm glad you listened to him. I said, that guy there is very good as well. But he preaches tithing, and that's an Old Testament precept. And I said, so you want to watch that. Just disregard his tithing uh, sermons. And then uh, uh, I, another guy, um, oh, I can say it. You'll know who I'm talking about. He follows him. I said, well, he teaches Lordship salvation. So you want to ignore that. Okay. Because that's an incorrect doctrine. I said, but he's does good servants and he's usually theologically sound, but he teaches Lordship salvation and you have to ignore that because it's incorrect. And the guy came back and was very appreciative of that. Don't get stuck on the teacher. Stick to the message. If the teacher is wrong, then he needs, they need to know about that and once again i have no idea if i am wrong in something because i believe that i'm right it's very hard to say i'm wrong and i'm going to teach this to you anyway i don't know who would do that okay so where i am wrong in the doctrine i would hope that people would correct me but not on the nephilim okay you don't need to do that but it has to be because i am actually really departed from the truth and you have to be able to defend it properly okay you know there are little things that i say in sermons i'm dyslexic and i say things backwards all the time and you don't need to email me and say you know you said paul here instead of peter i do it i do it all the time it's not intentional and if you read the sermon go to the notes they're there and you'll see that it's probably correct in the notes i i just i can't help it it's very hard for me i even think dyslexically i'll be laying in bed and i'll say things in my head backwards all the time. I don't know why that is. Maybe we see words when we're thinking. I don't know. But whatever. Okay. Um, 1120.
0: In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. Okay. This one's a
2: little different. Not much. But if you for you put up with one who brings you into bondage okay if one devours you if one takes from you if one exalts himself if one strikes you on the face same ideas but a little bit different terminology there paul just mentioned that the corinthians were wise because they put up with fools to show them their level of wisdom he ironically shows them their dullness his words here are reflective of the attitude of the pharisees towards those around them in israel a concept with which paul was eminently familiar having come from their ranks first he says to them that you put up with one who brings you into bondage this is what the lord said the pharisees did to the israelites in matthew 24 let me take you there you probably know the verse i'm going to cite but i'll read it anyway matthew 24 verse 4 and mark keep going charlie Matthew 24 whoops right here verse 4 it says and Jesus answered and said to them take heed that no one deceive." that's not what I wanted I said 24 4 and I know it's not 24 or maybe it's 23 4 yes 23 4 see I do that all the time too for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves will not move them with one finger he goes on but all their works they do to be seen by men they make their flatteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments and he goes on and on and on talking about these pharisees and how they do things that are uh, incorrect bringing people into bondage anyway let me go ahead and correct that and they brought them into bondage as if they were oxen required to carry their heavy burdens of legalism i know that's not even the verse i want it's the one where he says they put yes that is what i want okay never mind um Uh, let's see here, this is what I want right here. Hang on, we'll go there in a second. Okay, to them they brought them into bondage as if they were oxen required to carry their heavy burdens of legalism. The false teachers were there at Corinth doing exactly the same thing. They were adding to the simplicity of the gospel. Paul continues with, if one devours you, Jesus told the Pharisees they were doing just this in Matthew. Let me take you back here, and I hope I got the right verse this time. We'll see. Uh, Matthew 20, uh, let's see here, 23, 14. I put 24, 14, but no. Um, uh, Verse 23, 14. Uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation so that's once again it's not 24 it's 23 I do it all the time I wish I'd have people that would check on me okay in their greed for power and money the supposedly pious class of Pharisees devoured those around them robbing from them even the homes they lived in the false teachers were no different they came came in with piety and consumed like lions continuing on he says if one takes from you Jesus noted the same trait among the Pharisees in Matthew Twenty three, twenty five, where he says woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you cleanse out the outside of the cup and the dish but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence so you got the extortion there the pharisees extorted from those around them in order to feed their own self-indulgence the false apostles were obviously doing the same thing to the corinthians titus had been there and he had certainly reported to paul all that he saw was going on Adding on to the charges against them, he next says, if one exalts himself, Jesus noted the trait in the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So he didn't have very much good to say about the pharisees and paul is saying the exact same thing about these people here the pharisees exalted themselves in outward beauty and in outward righteousness but it was a mere facade the same was true with the false apostles who came to corinth they looked marvelous but they were full of corruption to finish the verse paul says if one strikes you on the face this is exactly what jesus accusers did to him during his night of the passion in luke twenty-two sixty-four, 64 and what happened to paul in acts 23 2 Remember, he, uh, the high priest went and told him to strike paul and paul says god will strike you you whitewashed wall likewise the false apostles came in and had wielded such strong authority over the corinthians that they had either literally or figuratively done the same to them life application legalism always leads to the demeaning of those who are brought into its stronghold knowing your Bible is the only way to avoid being trapped by its heavy bonds legalism it's just I you know it, it is just as much bondage as is liberalism. Liberalism takes from the word of God. Legalism adds to the word of God. People say you need to do this and you need to do that. and I'm going to control this aspect of your walk with Christ and I'm going to do this and that. The next thing you know, you're in just as bad of shape as if you didn't believe the Bible was the word of God at all. Either way, it's just you need to stick to the word and you need to not subtract to it or add to it ever. Okay? 1121, I think that's all we're going to be able to do today.
0: Sure. To my shame, I admit, that we were too weak for
2: that. Okay. In the preceding verses, Paul noted that the Corinthians had put up with fools who brought them into bondage, devoured them, stolen from them, exalted themselves above them and even struck them in the face. Paul now says that to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. The we is emphatic and it is intended with the greatest of irony. In essence, they treated you shamefully, but we were too weak to be able to treat you in that same way. Yes.
0: I think it goes on to the next paragraph. What are you saying? Yeah, yeah there's more to this, this uh, verse. It's the end of a paragraph here, but it starts on the next verse. And...
2: Oh, well, go ahead. Read it.
0: Okay, let me do it all over. Okay. Again. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Okay,
2: I'll read it because this one's a little different. I wasn't looking when you read it because you said it was short, and so I believed you. For (laughs) our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Okay, yeah, it was longer. All right, so we'll continue with the thought. However, to show that he really isn't weak, meaning Paul but that his conduct was appropriate, he continues on with the words, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. The word bold here is translated in various ways, daring, courageous, to presume, to boast. The idea is a type of boasting in his many achievements, some of which were more daring than others. This will be seen in the explanation that follows. In his foolish speaking, He will describe his qualifications to show that he is not only comparable to them in boasting, but that he is eminently qualified to do so. Starting in the next verse and going on through verse 10 of the next chapter, he will list those qualifications. It is a foolish endeavor, yes, but it is one which has been necessitated by the attitude of the Corinthians towards the false teachers. If they need to have someone to follow who can boast about his qualifications, guess what? then they will get a mouthful from the Apostle Paul. He can give them all and so much more than those false apostles could ever imagine. And he's going to. We're going to get to him eventually. So, life application and we'll be done. It is right to be humble and not bragging about one's own achievements. But Paul shows that there is a time when it becomes necessary to show past achievements in order to establish a baseline for others to understand the quality of the man. This doesn't mean unnecessary boasting, but rather it may be as simple as providing proof that you can empathize with the plight of others because you have been in the same place that they are. When necessary, be ready to use your past to help others properly evaluate the world around them. Paul is going to do that, and when he does, he's going to let the Corinthians see that he could have boasted all along. He could have done this from the very beginning and came in and said, you know, I was this and I was this and I've done that. he, He could have told them all of that at the beginning and they would have been all awestruck over him and they would have missed the entire point of what Paul was trying to do, which was to be a servant of Christ and to not be a burden on them, to work with his own hands, to live humbly and simply and to just teach them the word of God. Instead, these people come in probably with flowing robes and with all kinds of piety and speaking in Hebrew. Oh, yeah, I understand Hebrew. Paul probably never did that, not even once. He probably just stood there and and uh, spoke to them in Greek. And, you know, this is the message that I have for you. And they probably never even thought to ask, oh, you know Hebrew? Oh, you know Latin? You know, probably didn't even have any idea about it. But Paul was trying his best to not be one to boast. But in the end, by not boasting, he's given us an example of when to boast. Everything in the word is inspired. God is perfect in what he is Had happened even in Corinth and even here and wherever else you are, so that he can reveal himself through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your word today and uh, to uh, test it and to uh, read it and to understand it and to uh, share it and to live by it and all the things that we can do with your word, Lord. But help us never to question it in a way that would say this is not the word of God or that this part doesn't belong there, or any of that type of nonsense, but to understand that your word is perfect and to understand it in the proper context and to apply it to our lives and to diligently lead others to wanting to read it as well. May this be so to your glory, and may people be edified as they read your word and as they study it and as they come to wonderful insights that are tucked away that maybe you've never revealed to anyone else in human history until their eyes saw it. May that be so for everybody that is diligent to study your word. It's a big word, and we'll be looking at it for for eons to come, wondering at all the marvel that we've missed because you're so glorious. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this word. We once again pray for the people we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, uh, service, and we pray that you'll be with them through their times of troubles and give them strength in their times of needs. And we certainly once again lift up our president for wisdom in this time of crisis in this nation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.